All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hey there, welcome to episode 23 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and come Christmas Eve, I'll be watching Scrooge, The Muppet Christmas Carol, and oddly, Little Shop of Horrors on loop. I'm joined by. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I once got a bike for Christmas, but it didn't have any pedals. And I'm Jen Offord, and I can play Walking in the Air really badly on a flute. I'm not sure which is more terrifying this or the thing we're not mentioning later on consumer expert and general all-round top lass fix layton gives us a lowdown on sales and returns alice hutton comes in to talk to us about why we should all care about the slow death of local newspapers daisy may hudson talks to us about her beefer and grierson nominated film halfway and her family's experience of being made homeless Sarah's SMQT answers the question, how can I not be so lonely this Christmas? God, that is ratcheting up a notch, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the fear factor is... Yeah. <laughs> and I recap what Dunleavy does Disney has taught us so far. It's to be afraid. <laughs> Always be Very afraid. afraid. Of all things. But first, while we're still here, brilliant birds, top broads and excellent women, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we've temporarily ditched screaming into the abyss that is world news to celebrate the birds who made 2017 a better place. Without further ado, 
we give you standard issues, Women of the Year. Well, for me, the story of the year has to have been the Trump presidency. And I say that as someone who spent the whole year with a Brexit-induced tummy ache. (laughs) But more on that later. But in terms of sheer numbers of leaders of foreign countries that he's offended, slashed, riled with, slashed, threatened on Twitter, it's that toddler trapped in the body of a Kiora-stained golem who really (laughs) speaks to the quality of 2017 for me. However, let's look for the upside because his aggressively ineffectual and almost certainly corrupt regime has given a number of women the chance to shine as they do more for America than Paul Ryan ever could or indeed has. Kate McCabe and I talked earlier in the year about a whole range of excellent women taking a stand against Trump. But I think there are two that are really viable contenders for Women of the Year. Were we going to make this a competition? But we're not. Oh, they've just been mud wrestling bikinis. That's how women fight. Yeah, you you win a man at the end. You win a man? You win a man, yeah. Sign me up. And his pile of dirty laundry. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Less less bothered. Um, I think the two that I'm going to say are the viable candidates, because they've actually given women two of the year's most widely used slogans. The first is Elizabeth Warren, who I think has been pretty magnificent this year. She sort of stepped into the void left by Hillary Clinton, who's taken a well-deserved rest from politics. Right from the get-go, like Warren's been on Trump like a pigeon on chips. And um, (laughs) right back at the start of the year, her utterly reasonable objections to the confirmation of Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III as Attorney General led to some bad-mouthing by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and a vote to silence Warren, who refused to shut up. Or in the words that have been since emblazoned on T-shirts the world over... Nevertheless, she persisted. She must be, like, single-handedly keeping the T-shirt business going, I think. Well, you say that, but California Representative Maxine reclaiming my time waters has also been one of Trump's most vocal critics. She set Twitter and millions of hearts ablaze when Treasury Secretary and all-round greasy wazzock Steve Mnuchin (laughs) responded to her questions in front of the House Financial Services Committee with a mixture of stalling, flim-flam and insincere flattery, leading Waters to repeatedly point out that none of this shit was coming out of her allocated time to speak. So, yeah, that's two women I would be pushing forward for the, the title. Did it exist? Excellent choices. Over here in Blighty, Theresa May's snap general election in June massively backfired, and how the fuck she is still clinging on to leadership is anyone's guess. The subsequent Tory coalition with the DUP was a shot in the arm for equality, though, with the dream team of Teabag and Arlene Foster proving that women can be just as big a bag of dicks as men. There was, however, an upside, with a record number of women MPs winning seats in Parliament, breaking the 200 barrier for the first time ever, which is pretty cool, right? It is. We're still only at 32%, which, you know, isn't half the population ratio, but it's it's better. It's the best it's been. One female MP who increased her majority in the election is one of my women of the year and a choice about as surprising as a bear doing a big old dump in the forest. Jess Phillips, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley, continues to do sterling and vital work when it comes to protecting and championing women's rights, even when it means having a go at her own party. Just this month, Phillips, who worked for Women's Aid before going into politics, made an emotional plea to the government to ensure that no domestic violence victims are turned away from refuges something that does look likely under the new funding plans. Also, she's funny, she's gobby as fuck, and her book, Every Woman, which was published this year, is a must-read. Yes, Jess, just yes. Indeed. You've got a couple of lady I have uh, some unusual suggestions, and I'm I'm pretty sure anyone listening will know there's about as much chance of me voting Conservative as there is me being attacked by a werewolf. But we are living in an age of ideological purism. 
you know, if you're not with us, you're against us is a pretty common tactic for the right. It was increasingly being used by the left. Yeah, absolutely. With a number of respected left-wing writers joining the fray to point out the greatest evil of all is to fall anywhere towards the centre. That's not saying I respect those writers, and in the case of Owen Jones, I definitely don't. Merely that they are helping to further polarise the, the country, which is currently facing one of its biggest tests in its long history. So, scary times do necessitate some unusual bedfellows. And in that spirit, I cannot not mention how much I've been impressed by both Anna Subri and Heidi Allen, who are both conservatives. But Anna Subri's amazing. She do I agree cool. with everything they say and do? Fuck no. But Jesus Christ, somebody needed to stick their head above the parapet uh-huh. regarding yeah. Brexit. And they have done so, despite the fact that we're living in this polarised world. And despite the fact they're going to get shit from their colleagues, from their prime minister, from their constituents, from the national media, from social media. And they did it anyway. And I can't not say that I admire them greatly for doing so. Can I at this point, in the spirit of embracing those politicians who we may not always have considered our natural um, allies, allies, my MP, Diane Abbott. Who I have been quite vocally critical of in the past. I will just say, if we're going to give some shout outs for female politicians, I think this year the revelations of, you know, the, like the, just the vastness of the abuse that she's had from people online. She's dealt with it, I think, pretty well, all things considered. And she has, you know, it's completely unnecessary. I, I don't know what the fuck is happening, but it's causing such a ludicrous shitstorm on social media. But it's a tidal wave of excrement. It really is. And and yeah, I just, you know, although I will admit to being frustrated by her sometimes with that particular issue in mind, um, big up. She massively increased the majority as well. Though, she did. She? Yeah, yeah, she did massively. Yeah. And I, I agree completely. It just it drives me absolutely mad that we're at this point now where where people seem to forget that actually most progress from a historical point of view has come when you meet people in the middle or you work as a team against mm. a common enemy and... Mm. I think with things like Brexit and with things like rampant misogyny, that shouldn't have a political party. That no. should that should be a bipartisan effort. And like I say, I mean, Diane Abbott probably does mostly align herself with your political views. But yeah. you don't have to agree with everybody on everything to still think, you know what, on the balance of probabilities, they're going to be the best person for the job. And her constituents clearly think she is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the the weird thing you were saying about everything being more polarised than it's been for such a long time. It feels the flip side of that is that the far right and the far left are actually coming together. They are. They are at the top of the circle. Terrifying. Yeah. They are at the top of the circle. Yeah. And that is terrifying. And that is why the centre is probably where we kind of need to aim to be. Or six o'clock if they're all at 12 o'clock. If six you know o'clock. what I mean. Yeah, so the, I can't go much further without mentioning the Me Too campaign. The sad thing with the Me Too campaign is there are just too many women to name here um, who've shared their most horrific life experiences in order to expose serial abusers like Harvey Weinstein. It seems churlish not to mention Rose McGowan, who had the most extraordinary story to tell. I mean, former Mossad agents tailing her and all. Um, you could not make this shit up. All I can say is I genuinely hope that this given her some closure on the terrible things that she's been subjected to over the years because she really does deserve it. Just a little bit of background on Me Too. Activist Tarana Burke founded the movement in 2006 on MySpace. MySpace? Jeezy crazy. To support survivors of sexual assault and promote empowerment through empathy among women of colour. 
but women of all hues hopped on board when actress Alyssa Milano suggested using hashtag MeToo as a way to show the magnitude of sexual harassment. And while I think there are flaws in that campaign, because it does put the onus on those who have been abused and harassed to come forward, which could be traumatising for some people, there's no doubt that it did absolutely display the magnitude Mm. of shit that women have been dealing with. And a huge tip of the hat to another silence breaker, Susan Fowler, an American software engineer. She blew the whistle on the ridiculously sexist treatment she received during her time at Uber and in doing so has influenced actual institutional changes in Silicon Valley, which is probably one of the biggest boys clubs around today. White boys clubs. White boys clubs around today. Yeah, definitely. I also think we should mention Rebel Wilson, who really put her neck on the chopping block when she sued the Bauer Media Group in Australia for defamation after it portrayed her as a serial liar, as something she claimed had affected her ability to work. And she won, which is not just good for her, but also a necessary reminder to the media about how they speak about women. Absolutely. They said that she was lying about her name, her age, her relatives. But a lot of it was to do with some stories. You know, the this a story that she'd been bitten by a mosquito and had had a form of malaria and another thing about being in the same cage as a, a leopard, I believe. And... I can't help but feel if, say, for example, Will Ferrell had told that story to the media, it would have been treated as Will Ferrell just having, you know, it's a bit of fun. Maybe it is bullshit. Men are allowed to kind of create Mm. a bullshit mystique around them way more than a woman would be. She was brilliant during the trial as well. She was. She kept that up. She did. She performed what have been described as, in inverted commas, antics. But she absolutely was, this is my character. This is my life. I'm an actress and I'm a comedy actress. And I do this for a living. And also one of my favourites was the jury was six women. They didn't really think she was going to win. A lot of the papers were very scathing that she was going to win. But the six women trotted off and came back and said, yep. She got a lot of money as well. And she gave it all away. Well, she? well, I say that the Bauer are actually appealing the amount of damages awarded, so I would imagine they've yet to be paid. But she said she was going to give it to um, scholarship programs and things in the arts in Australia. Still in the entertainment industry, no one I know would argue that Margaret Atwood is anything other than brilliant, but it may seem odd to pick the literary giant in a year that she hasn't actually published a book. Yet this year saw two of her works, The Handmaid's Tale and Alias Grace, brought to near-perfect life by Hulu and Netflix respectively, with Atwood a producer on both. One set in the near future, the other set in the not-too-distant past, both are fiercely feminist and timely as hell. Which is where, if Atwood's predictions continued to be correct, women appear to be heading. The interesting thing about Alias Grace is, and I've told you guys this before, but it's worth mentioning, um, is that Sarah Polly, the Canadian actress, activist director, producer, documentary filmmaker, just an excellent woman. She wrote to Margaret Atwood and asked if she could adapt Alias Grace when she was, I think, 17 or 18. Yeah, 17. Wow. And was. Margaret Atwood came back to her and said, maybe come back to me in a few years when, you know, you're a bit older and see if you can, like, and we'll talk about it again. And so she gave it, I think, probably 20 years and went back to her and Margaret Atwood said, yeah, now's the time you can make it now. That's amazing. A nice yeah. It does feel like Atwood's some sort of oracle. Oh, go on, share your other Atwood fact, Hannah. Oh, that she's written a book that nobody's going to read for 100 years. This was a couple of years ago. It's been yeah, locked away. It's like a time capsule thing, yeah, isn't it? Locked away in a, I think it's in their ever in library Toronto, in, in, in Canada, yeah. It'll either be unearthed by a very heavily soiled Samantha the sex robot yeah. um, or <laughs> just a group of women who have learned to deal without men. I think yeah. it's going to go one way or the other. And I bet she's pretty much nailed it. Mm-hmm. 
Another woman in entertainment that I want to give a tip of the hat to is Samantha B, who continues to deliver some of the best and most biting political commentary on telly or the internet, which is how I tend to watch her. Uh, takes on the White House, sexual harassment, and what women need to do to change the world are both damning and hilarious. Yeah, she is rather brilliant. And if you want to hear my Women of the Year, keep listening, because I will be featuring them in this week's Journey Off the Blocks. Sporty Broads. Sporty Broads, coming soon. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. It's that time of the week where we try to find laughs in the grim despair that is everyday sexism. Looking back at the year, it's clear that the biggest culprit of sexism this year is men. Yeah, yeah, not all men. And we're not anti-men, far from it. I like men. Some of my best friends are men. But from Donald Trump to Harvey Weinstein, from backdoor policies negating women's rights to institutionalised harassment, the biggest perks of this shittery have ball bags and a sense of entitlement that is almost impressive in its you-can't-touch-this-confidence. But it feels like a sea change might just be happening. For all the crimes against women dominating the news, 2017 belonged to the birds. The collective rage of women has been loud and powerful. A clarion call to fuck this shit. From the Women's March in January to the Me Too hashtag in October, female solidarity has been nothing short of awesome. Also, US Dictionary Merriam-Webster named feminism as its word of 2017, which I am choosing to see as a very positive thing. I agree. Yeah. I saw somebody else had picked Youthquake and I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> was so. it an album from um, Dead or Alive? Was it? Yeah, it was certainly something before Corbyn's success at the last German election. I think but, it's yeah. when you get spun right round like a record baby right round oh, really? until you're shaking. That's a Youthquake. Oh, okay. Yeah, feminism's way better. Yeah. Sexism is still happening. Sorry to report that, guys. But it does feel like there's, there's hope. I think, yeah, I think absolutely. I'm sure it'll all go to shit again tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. But I do feel like 2017, although it has been, you know, the staggering revelations. This Well, not even, do you know what? Not even revelations because most women have just gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just life, mate. That is literally just what happens to us all the time. Yeah. But... It's actually had some traction with men this year. It feels like maybe something is happening. And I do feel like 2017 has definitely been, is, is belonged to women. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and he said to me, it makes you quite nervous around men that you admire, that you that who might come next. You know, Dustin mm. Hoffman, Kevin Spacey, whoever it is that you liked, you know, that they might be taken out next. And he said it. Makes you feel like you don't know who you can trust. And I said, well, there you go. That's the closest you will ever get to feeling what it's like to be a woman. Yeah. Congratulations. 2017 has has been an insight into our world. So maybe that's the positive side of it. Hi, everyone. We're joined in the studio by Vix Layton, consumer expert and general elf queen. Hi. I say elf queen because you're going to talk to us about Christmas shopping, the do's, the don'ts, the whales and the sales. Yep, absolutely. Consumer rights. It's a sexy subject and I'm, I'm here for it. So. You're dressed accordingly. You're looking very sexy today. <laughs> I'll stuff at you. All right. She's just in six sales bags tied together. It's like Jodie Marsh's <laughs> outfit, but with Tesco club cards. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that were true. <laughs> you too- It is a time of year where I think people, one, panic by, two, get swayed by advertising and three, wonder how to get a lot of shit out of their house and back in a shop. Can you talk us through those? (laughs) Well, I'm actually an expert in this, but I am a 
probably the worst for it. I've got a pile of ASOS bags. I'm like the smaug of ASOS, so I'm just sitting on a pile of bags that need to I go back. I don't know what ASOS like, is. As oh. seen on screen is what it was originally yeah. called. Online okay. store. It's okay. excellent. Yeah, it's it's really good. good, actually. And I will say, as somebody who, you know, is above the normal high street size, they do a really, really good range for plus size people and they don't make you feel really bad about it. One thing I will say about ASOS, and I wanted to mention it, is me with all my bags of returns for the laugh a couple of months ago I decided just to send a random one back that I bought in like February and they credited the full amount to my account so fair play to them um they didn't have to they it it wasn't my right it certainly wasn't my right and um I got all the money back and apparently as long as it's not in the sale you will get what you paid for it if they can do that for you it's amazing I have a similar ASOS return story I got a pair of shoes in the wrong size well they were my size but it was one of those that I needed to size up so I got the right size and I had lost my receipt for the first ones so just sent them back and sort of lied on the on the thing on the form <laughs> you Fine. don't even have to lie they're, they're, they're down for it i like to feel sneaky <laughs> that's all right it's it's a win and i think this is how people get caught out on sales because you think you're having a win and i think black friday was all about fomo everybody felt obliged to buy something like i was scouring the internet with absolutely no idea what i wanted i just knew i wanted something and i wanted it to be a really good deal i think everyone gets caught out by it so i expect there's a lot of buyer's remorse going on and i think people throw around consumer the consumer rights as well people think they are absolutely entitled to their money back and that's not always true oh, yeah. so that is something that you've got to be aware of i did a bit of research before i came in because she I, googled stuff yeah I, I did i did some googling and um, the consumer rights act does exist and it is so much better than sale of goods which was pre-2015 but <laughs> money saving expert i love them i love martin lewis i love what he's done for the world but he is crassly trying to fit the consumer rights act into the acronym of sad fart now, now sad fart sad fart yeah catchy satisfactory catchy. quality the s as the a described the d f is fit for purpose i feel like i could make this into a song a is and last a r reasonable length of for time. So, I mean, he is. He, he done <laughs> that with a haiku. I think. Yeah. It's beautiful. If, oh, he wasn't, if he wasn't doing this, he'd be writing songs, clearly. I reckon I could make something fit. Fuck trumpet. If I put my mind to it. No. I'm quite excited about this because I have a fact about one of the, one of the consumer rights acts that I wheel out to people and they always go, that's not true. And I say, I've got a GCSE in law thank you very much a b yeah yeah uh and when i studied this this is what i was told so i'm i'm excited to hear what what the actual reality is because i might have just been lying to what people. is your fact <laughs> that if something is faulty you do not have to have a receipt Yes, I was going to tell people this. Yes, absolutely Bingo, bongo, Jenster. No one, people don't seem to know this. I'm not just 40 if something stops working. I bought a Hoover in Tesco once and basically I got a new one every six months because that's the point (laughs) that my cat's hair killed it. And every time they went, yep, it's guaranteed for a year, you don't need a receipt and it, it got taken back. And also, I think you have something like 12 months... If something is faulty, you have 12 months under, I think that's right? 12 months, is it's easy and it's written in stone, but you have up to six years. So basically it's what a reasonable what? person thinks is the right amount of time. So if you buy a washing machine, you expect that to go for a good few years. Yeah. Whereas if you buy boots from Dorothy Perkins, then you know the heel, the stupid tiny heel, is probably going to go through on your second go. I feel there was so. a personal story there. <laughs> there um, are but, so many and but, I keep buying them. I never so, <laughs> so when people get... I feel like we're going slightly off. So when people get sold extended warranties and 
it, they don't need them. Well, in theory, no. Like the warranty is your protection. That is your agreement that, you know, that that is a thing. And that is directly with the manufacturer, whereas the contract you've got with the place that you buy it is with them. So that's where your rights come in. It's with the reseller that sells it. It's not with the manufacturer. So if your GHDs or your straighteners or other brands are available, <laughs> break down, for example, and you bought them from Argos, you need to take them back to Argos. I mean, GHD might help you. And that's like you, six years, though. Tesco's have fucked me. Years. I mean, yeah. Not literally. <laughs> I, I, not the whole of Tesco. Fuck the me whole, with a pair of hair straighteners. How do you find time? No, with a pair, with a pair of <laughs> headphones. Like right? Cord. I Sorry. keep... I had this thing. I bought some headphones from Tesco. They stopped working. I exchanged them. The set, I bought the same headphones. They stopped working again. Like, after about... I don't know. It was about... I can't remember the exact... It was more than three months. And I think they said to me, oh, if it's after three months, sorry, but... You've got to talk to Sony. You, we're not dealing with you. And they refused. They said, "Here's Sony's phone number. Call them." <laughs> well, well, you take that back. <laughs> you take those back now. Really? Yeah. They were just like, "Well, it cost fifteen pounds." I think that a, a set of headphones that cost fifteen pounds should last for longer than two fucking months. Well, like this is these were brought in in October 2015. So this is the most bang up state stuff. So it might yeah. be there was some wiggle room prior, but this was this year. Oh, well, oh. So you've got bang to rights. Bang to rights. Let's all tweet them after this. <laughs> can we, but can we <laughs> say thanks for, for Jen. thanks for Hannah yeah. Hoover? I mean, it feels like <laughs> yeah. a, a plus and a, a negative. Yeah. Well. Oh, my God. Sorry. By swings and roundabouts, you mean Hoovers and headphones. Hoovers yeah. and headphones. Sorry, yeah. Vix. I feel Sorry. like it's become a session like, for you tell to me, out. Tell me my legal rights. I want you to tell me now. There's a reason it's sad fart, isn't there? Because we've all got a story like this and none of them are any good. <laughs> what? That's one of my best. <laughs> it was a banger. I that's, spoke, that's I spoke some, prematurely that's there. That's some Jen's Please Tinder have profile. me back. <laughs> the time I had a dispute with Tesco <laughs> over a £15 set of Sony headphones. <laughs> Sexy stuff. Right. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I like that stuff. That's why I'm a consumer expert. Um, anyway... <laughs> Um, returns policies are, you know, rich and varied though. And if your if your thing isn't broken, then you're not entitled to a refund. So that's the headline news. And I think a lot of people think you are. Like my mum has marched me into shops many times and gone, no, you, you'll have all your money back. And they just tend to give in to her. So she doesn't learn either because they just want her to go away. And <laughs> that, that reminds me of a story. That reminds me of a story of my, which my dad told me of many, I'm going way off tangent here, many, many years ago, he, he uh, his dad used to cut his hair you know, in the bowl style, in the same, the same as the rest of all his family and his sisters. And he once persuaded my granddad that for his birthday he would like a proper haircut. So my granddad gave him like a shilling or whatever he did in those days to go to the hairdressers. And when he came back with his hairstyle that he really liked, my granddad was like, that, mate, was not worth a shilling and made him go back to the shop and have more cut <laughs> <laughs> he got value for money. So dad was like, that plan backfired. I'm really, I'm really, I'm good at that now. I've had too many bad haircuts and bad hair colours. I will go back and I will have them put, oh, put it right. It's difficult. With, oh, oh, God, here we are. She's Jen's really, back. It's really tricky because they're looking at you like, do you like that? And you're thinking, no, I look like Anthea Turner from <laughs> 1995. Like I've had from that, that time where a motorbike shifted <laughs> off the platform. <laughs> She's got a bit of shock. Uh, <laughs> 
She's having a cup of tea. She's having a nice cup, cup of tea because she's got some shock. Uh, I made a hairdresser cry once because basically um, I wanted a really qu- high quality ombre. And, um, you know, I know. I don't know what I'm that is. It's, oh, it's where your hair goes from dark to light. Like, in sort of like, like mine and Jen's. Yeah. Uh, okay. Like that lovely word art. Um, Colour that you get from like yellow to red. Okay, got you. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, I went, I went along to Slovak. Yeah, and Slovak, um, I, I should have known. He locked the door, which was weird. Was, <laughs> I mean, it was a late Hang advice. on, I don't know what that is either. You don't know what locking a no. door is? Oh, I right. went to the Slovak. salon. Oh, Slovak, that's the name of the, head, oh, okay. the hairdresser. And he, he locked had, the door? Yeah, he collected Barbie dolls, he told me, over the course of the evening. Um, <laughs> and um, to get my high-quality ombre um he got a kidney tray a hospital kidney tray <laughs> poured bleach in it and just dipped my hair in it that's not how it works <laughs> no. it is not how it works and as he was doing it he was like ta-da I was like well this can't be finished I looked him dead in the eye and um he started to cry <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so embarrassed about it that I did go back and have it corrected to a degree because apparently the man just didn't have the skills. It wasn't his fault. Maybe well, it was his fault. Maybe he, he, wants, he needs another job. But like, you don't have to have any, do you? As a hairdresser, you actually don't have to no. have any qualifications to do it. I never asked for them. It's like, have you got your B-Tech in here, in here styling? It's like being the editor of the Evening Standard. Yeah. <laughs> anyone could do anyone it. Could do it. Yeah. But I was so embarrassed, I had to buy him a bottle of port as an apology for making him cry. And I don't even know how that happened. Was that his drink of choice? Did uh, yeah. he request it? Yeah, he did. Did you say, he can was... I buy you a bottle of something? And he said, yes. No, he just oh, casually mentioned port. that he liked port over the course. Oh. You know, it took two hours to make that much of a mess. Does frankly. he share it with his Barbies? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I still feel bad about it, but I also feel great because it was my right to have what I paid for and I sort of ended up with it. And I got to tell the amazing story to the next hairdresser as a warning as to what could happen if they, yeah. they fucked my hair up again. Somebody did once stain my forehead. At the, um, <laughs> I was having your mum? Ha- no, no, she has done that. Um, no, um, Vaseline on it. <laughs> it's your mum, you've got no rights here. Yeah, <laughs> she can do what she likes. A cousin of mine was, was working at a college where they train like hairdressers and beauticians. And she was like, um, you dye your hair. Do you want to come in? Because we're looking for people who want like their hair dyed. And I was like, as long as you give me someone who's not like the worst person in the class. And she was like, no, we'll give you one of the better ones. And I got there. As and, long as he's not putting bleach in uh, a kidney tray. I mean, to be yeah. fair, she was one of the better ones. God knows what the worst. The worst ones were just yeah, just sticking hair on stuff with Brit sticks or whatever. <laughs> but. I kept saying, it's going on my forehead, you're going to need to, I was going on my forehead, and she was like, it'd be fine, so it's going on my forehead, and got to the point where we, like, rubbed it off, like, it was, like, my entire, like, bits was, like, really stained, and then, of course, you try and scrub it, which just makes it worse, because it makes it even redder. Raw, it was red raw. Yeah, so I had this kind of weird red halo across my face, which was, stayed there for about a week, and, um, yeah, I did a gig with that on my face, which was weird, (laughs) Hang on, is that not your natural hair colour? Funny you should say that. <laughs> I did this thing, I went through a period of having to dye my hair quite dark because after a home hairdressing disaster, there was only, that was the only solution, basically. I just had to go a lot, lot darker. And I did it myself, which is always, uh, yeah, didn't didn't work out so well for me. I didn't have that art down. And uh, I had not put the uh, required Vaseline on my face, which is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I actually did was I dyed my beard black. (laughs) (laughs) All of this, like, blonde down on my face. (laughs) 
and I had to like wax my entire face basically. And you can see all of these on Jen's Tinder profile. (laughs) (laughs) Vix, we've gone way off subject. Can we get back to (laughs) consumer rights? Yeah. The moral of the story I'd say is if things are broken, take them back at whatever stage and don't you don't have to like Jen's fast fact, you don't have to have a receipt. You just have to have proof of purchase. So take things back. Don't just leave them broken. What is proof of purchase though if it's not a receipt? It could be the money on your bank statement, mm-hmm. apparently. Yeah. Yeah. What if there are further repercussions of this thing being broken? For example, your straighteners do take a chunk of your hair out. Well, the manufacturer is the next step. If they are digging their heels in, I mean, they shouldn't because your rights are your rights for this. But if you do take it to the manufacturer, it, by the time it gets that far, I mean, there is a PR element to it as well. So mm. if it is something like that has happened... They just want you to be happy. So, Ooh. Ooh, so sorry, that was just. Some, I was going to ask about the power of public shame yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. That's what you were going to say. Because you know when you see yeah. when you see those accounts that someone has basically opened just to tweet people that like manufacturers they're yeah. angry with and yeah. your heart dies. And you do, but you do look. And that's the thing. I've been a social media manager for a couple of places. You do look, and if they have literally opened a Twitter profile to complain and they've got two followers, then there's no, you know, you're probably not necessarily going to shoot them to the top of the queue if they're also being a bit of an asshole but you know you you can't you can't undermine the power of it now unfortunately and it is unfair and i've always thought it's unfair in the same way when i worked in a call center the people that shouted the loudest got through to the manager and the manager wouldn't back your play and would give them what they wanted i used to hate that i was like what's wrong with politeness what's wrong with people who respect the order of things getting what they want polite public shaming because you do see some people that are like and I mean, I don't know whether it's it's passive aggressive, whichever way you look it at is, it. Yeah. It is passive aggressive. Yeah. But you can be you can still have manners and I think that's really important because I like, I mean I've worked in call centres and as a you know, customer services and stuff and it, in a bar or whatever and if someone's nice to me and polite then they will get more of my time and probably more what they want than if they're a raging arsehole. And yeah, and that's the thing. If you've reached the end of trying to do it without utilising social media and you're getting nowhere it is a good outlet and it, it does work. I've done it myself, even though I've worked in it. I've also flipped it and done the other side and it, it does work. But I do try and pay it forward if I am deaverish and I'm not willing to wait my turn. And I, I take to Twitter for a slow, slow outcome and I do try then to tweet when people have done nice things. Mm. So if somebody's gone above and beyond, I do. I'm one of those people that's like, what's your name, young man? I do <laughs> yeah, sort of I take names I and I do do positive shout outs. I think there's not enough of that on the other side of it when you get good service or better than you expected service people who've tried hard it's nice to it's nice to recognise that there's as well there's a stat isn't there I remember being told this during oh, it's I love Dixon's facts. Dixon's for a while when I was a student that's uh, a great day a few well it's more than a day um, but there was uh, there's some sort of stat about the number of people that complain if something's wrong versus the number of people that say when it's good and it's something like Eight out of ten people will say if they've had a bad experience and two out of ten will say if they've had a good experience. Yeah, and it's exactly that. You know, people just keep that to themselves. Whereas if you've got a story and you're outraged, you'll tell as many people as you can. And that is why if you do tend to take it public or if you're making a big fuss, you tend to get your own way. But, you know, from a rights point of view, you haven't necessarily got the rights for that and it shouldn't it shouldn't work like that but it does so if you're a nice person looking to get you know just just get your say be nice go for guys. it if you're an asshole it doesn't work honest it doesn't work we don't like it okay so. 
Um, just a quick shout out to PC World when I left my charger at Jen's house last week and it would have been 80 quid for a new charger for the space of a day but I desperately needed to charge my computer. They let me just stand in their Halifax <laughs> store and charge it up on one of their like little airbook displays. So thanks. And he won't give me a good review is what he actually said yeah. and I have not done that until now. Thanks there PC World. Thanks, you PC saved World. the podcast last week. You did. It meant yeah. we could have a podcast last week. Oh God bless us everyone. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful beginning thing. to look a lot like okay. consumer rights. Yeah. It's beginning to look a lot like getting your rights and not mis- getting it wrong. So don't assume. Like if you're buying, like you said, two sizes, don't assume you'll get your money back. Check first, unless you want to be disappointed. Yeah. A lot, you know, loads of shops do. They want to be helpful. They want you to keep buying through them, so they will let you buy multiple sizes. It's not your right though. If there's nothing wrong with it, they can just give you a credit note, or they can just point blank tell you to just piss off. Topshop yeah. is one of the people that do have their um, refund policy on the front of the mm. desk. And I've always wondered why it's there. It's because, contrary to what I believe, before I started working in retail, that's not my right to have things changed over. And it's there. It's your 28 days. It's we want a refund. And as long as it's not broken, they have every right to put those stipulations in place. And I think with clothes as well and with sales, you need to check that that still applies. Because, again, they might tell you, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is credit note only on the till. Pay attention. Because yeah. they have no, you've got no rights there. So oh, a lot of people extend it over Christmas, though, mm. don't they? Yeah, it's usually like two months, I think, to the end of January yeah. usually. Yeah, and yeah. if you bought it from like the beginning of November, middle of November, but again, it's interesting because I think I was definitely someone who thought, well, I've got my receipt, I just get yeah. to return this. And it, it varies. And like John Lewis's, you know, they, they love to just do slightly better than everybody else. You get 35 days with them. But... Four years. <laughs> Can I ask you a question about vouchers? Because yes. in the good old days when you got bought a book token by, oh, do you remember books? Do you by remember your things? Auntie Margarita. Hello, Auntie Margarita. It lasted forever. Nowadays, some yeah. tokens have a shelf life, don't they? Yes, and people don't know this. Again, it's one of those things that people assume they last forever, and sometimes they print the expiry date on the receipt, and you don't necessarily want to give the receipt over, but that's why they sort of tuck it into the wallet so they don't have to have the awkward chat. But even if they do last forever, shift them as quickly as possible is my advice because you just don't know which company unfortunately is going to go to the wall next there's no such thing as too big like Toys R Us has gone into administration oh well HMV did it a few years ago didn't they I I remember buying someone an HMV voucher and them literally having I think a day to spend it before their (laughs) before their local um, HMV went under and that's the thing you know in theory you're you're entitled to it but you're very much the end of the debtor's queue. So yeah, when, if you could pursue it and pursue it and pursue it, but if it's something like a tenny, you're probably not going to. So when you get it, don't save it. Spend it as quickly as you can. Look out for those expiry dates. Some do last forever, but it's not many. Just one last question, Vic. Go on then. Do we have to fight for our right to Christmas party? Well, we absolutely shouldn't. If I ruled the world, then <laughs> Christmas parties would be like, well, they wouldn't be compulsory because everyone Ernst hates Christmas. Ernst all round. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, not really. No, no. But uh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. We shouldn't fight for our right. But if we've had a bad time, then we should expect a refund, I think. Time is something that you literally cannot have paid back. Do not go to bad parties. Do not settle for bad parties. <laughs> Complain about bad parties. Make them good parties. Uh, Queen of FOMO, <laughs> Vic Slayton. Thanks for that advice. Uh, where can people follow you on Twitter, please? Um, at PR Vix. Lovely stuff. Thank you so much for coming in. That was really interesting. Yeah. Hi, we're in the studio with journalist Alice Hutton. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi, Alice. Hi. Alice and I used to work together, and we're here to talk about newspapers, local newspapers in particular. But the reason that we're doing this is you might have seen this. 
probably two weeks ago now, the Cambridge News, a newspaper that Alice and I used to work at together, put out a front page that didn't have a headline on it. Well, it had a holding headline. Thousand point head here. Yeah. Then the strap line was missing as well. It it? was a subject of much hilarity on Twitter, uh, social media. It's better than some headlines in the Daily Mail anyway. (laughs) Well, do you know, it not only was a subject of hilarity on Twitter, but it was the second most read story on the whole of the BBC website that day. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. Proving that we all love a subbing error. (laughs) Who we doesn't do. love a subbing error? A lot of journalists, who probably should know better, were tweeting out about how could this be allowed to happen. Mocking the local rag. Exactly. We're here to have a conversation about why it's not funny. So just kind of to start with our credentials, perhaps we could probably say how we, we guys have worked on local newspapers. Alice. So I worked on the Cambridge News with Hannah. Uh, it was my first job in journalism. I was there as a junior reporter. Then I ended up being their university's correspondent. I went on to work in other local papers in London. And I went on to the Sunday Times, the Times, and now I work as their reporter for the BBC. Mick? Publication-wise, I started off in Lads Mags, but I did a bit of work experience at the Books and Advertiser when I was a, a wee one. And then I worked at Metro, which isn't necessarily a local newspaper, but I was the arts editor for my region, which was Yorkshire. So that had a very local flavour to it. And I worked at all sorts of local newspapers, mainly as a freelance, Leighton Buzzard, Milton Keynes, most of Hertfordshire. And then I did 12 years at the Cambridge News on the subs desk. It's not funny, is it, Alice? And I was so cross when I saw people laughing at them on Twitter that I put together a series of tweets and within a day they had 300 um, retweets. And that's because I wasn't the only person who was angry, but you need someone to articulate why it's not funny. And the reason why it's not funny is since I left the Cambridge News in 2012, there's no correlation, guys, it's not the reason (laughs) that they went downhill, but in 2012 the paper got sold and it got sold to a company whose chairman had his leaked comments describe the regional press as festering, pencil-wielding, medium-grade craft from a twilight world. So the company that owned the Cambridge News, that's iLeaf News and Media, they'd owned them for 92 years, and they sold the paper to a company who thought the regional press was festering. And also used way too many adjectives in the sentence, so clearly (laughs) needed a sub. That sentence is unwieldy itself. Seriously, five years, the paper switched owners three times. The number of staff who've worked there has dropped by half. Circulation has dropped by half. They fired all the sub-editors. They deleted 10 years of the website to save on costs. So There's no archive then? There's no no archive left on the newspaper. That's 10 years gone. It's the only daily newspaper left in the city. You're not only deleting history, you're deleting collective memories of the people. It's an an act almost of, well, local people were calling it cultural vandalism, really, to to do that kind of thing to a town. And then one of the owners, Ileaf, just before he sold the paper, HMRC took them to a tribunal and won and found out that as the company was making cuts to staff, they hid £51.4 million in revenue to avoid paying pay rises to their staff. Mm. And then weeks later, they sold the paper they'd owned for 92 years. That's the equivalent of selling your granny to a new family who promised to look after her but actually boil her down for glue. (laughs) A front page without a headline on it is merely the symptom of a disease that doesn't just afflict the Cambridge News, it's afflicting regional journalism as a whole. Can we talk about how important local newspapers are? Because I think they are very easily dismissed. 
they provided so many services mm. and a sense of community Absolutely. That, is, that is now missing. Well, it's not just the sense of community. Local papers alter how communities interact, politically interact with democracy at a genetic level. So, for instance, King's College in London, they've done a study that came out last year. The same studies have been done in America, post-Trump, um, in George Washington University, Portland State University, American University, and they've all found that if your local daily newspaper closes in your town, it decreases political and civic engagement. And if that happens, then your distrust of public office increases and it introduces either less voting or extremist voting. John Oliver, who we all love, did a section about the death of big city newspapers in America. He interviewed David Simon, the writer, who was a long-time crime reporter on the Baltimore Sun, and he said something that I have to quote all the time, which is that people will say to him... But you know what? There are new titles coming. And he says, the day I see BuzzFeed in a local planning meeting is the day that I think BuzzFeed is going to save journalism. And that's just not going to happen, is it? It's not the same Mm. to put something on Twitter. It's so transient, whereas a local newspaper can start a campaign and they can say, this is not right. You know, they want to over-romanticise it. But in the old days, people came to the newspapers as a last result. They've got mould in their flat. The council won't deal with it. They've got things that are going wrong in their lives and their local school or whoever it is that they're not happy with. And therefore, calling the local paper in applies pressure. But also the nationals would pick up what yeah. seemed like a small story in a, a local newspaper and realise that other local newspapers were covering it too. And then that's how it becomes a thing that the government have to deal with. If no one's reporting on it, if no one's doing the dull job of, oh my God, I've sat in council meetings and they are the dullest thing ever. But then something will just happen that you realise is a story that no one else would notice that they would get away with if there wasn't a reporter in there. When I left the Cambridge News, I went to a place called the Camden New Journal. The Camden oh, New yeah, Journal is just around paper. the corner from here, and um, it's the, one of the last independently owned newspapers left in the UK. So it's run by an 86-year-old man called Eric Gordon, rather than by, say, a multi-millionaire publisher like Trinity Mirror or Johnson Press. And it was founded out of a strike, and as a result, it's run on a community model, and they put all of their funds back into hiring good reporters and printing. I mean, its circulation is about 150,000. This is a weekly paper in London. That's probably, you know, a similar circulation now to The Guardian, which goes out at about 150,000. And the Camden New Journal does an incredible line in campaigns, an incredible line in spending your birthday sitting in council meetings and reading all sorts of documents. And one of the things that they've done is they've twice saved the Whittington Hospital Wow! by sitting in health meetings, which no one else wants to go to, reading 200-page documents and finding the one line that says, by the way, we're closing the hospital, guys. Yeah. Twice, they led protest marches with a big red battle bus from Camden Town through to the Whittington with several thousand people with the MPs, and the hospital was not shut down. And that is just one example of a local paper. If you have the time to spend in the local council meeting, then it's definitely worthwhile. Subs for ages were the ones who were safe, even when they were making cuts among reporters and editorial staff where I worked, because it was well known that you need someone to catch those errors, you need someone to lay out the pages, and they do a plethora of roles. And as soon as the subs started going was when I was like, oh, shit, we're in real trouble now. I think journalism's in, or print journalism's in real trouble. Well, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, just to be clear, if you're wondering why that front page 
happened. I was the last person to run the subs desk at the Cambridge News. Uh, I left in 2013. I took voluntary redundancy. There is no position of subs now. There are some people who do a job that is an amalgamation, which is part news desk, part almost editorial assistant. There's not even, you go straight through someone's not even someone there to answer the phone to, mm-hmm. to sort of. So every Tom, Dick and Harry who wants to ring up to tell you that they think that the Queen is running a drug ring out of Sounding a Palace or whatever crazy Again. thing they're ringing. Seriously, Liz, you need to rein it in, mate. Rain it in. Sorry. But there is no longer a safety net. So the reason it's happened is because people are working on bad technology. It could be human error, in which case it's because those people are doing too many jobs at once, or it could be that the technology they're using is really old. Neither of those are a good thing. I mean, what Alice was saying earlier, you have a situation whereby people are attempting to run the media as if it's a big money organisation. There's not money in the media anymore. That doesn't mean you should strip the media for parts and abandon it. What it means is you need to either accept that it's not going to be a big money-making venture and you have to lower your expectations or you have to try and be innovative. But that's not what's happening. What's happening now is things are going digital first, which means that people are even less likely to buy a newspaper because they read this story two days ago online. That's the Guardian and the Mail. Well done. Well, the BBC is the big problem with that, to be honest, because even if everybody put a paywall up, the BBC would not be allowed to. I think but the Guardian and the Mail went online and they put everything online before it's even in the paper. There's no, They don't really give a reason to buy their newspaper anymore. Sadly, some people are still buying the Daily Mail and people are still buying the Guardian. But like you said, their circulation's like... For the Guardian, it's about 150,000, which is ridiculous. But their website gets like millions and millions of hits. But they're giving it all away for free. And that means it's very hard to compete in that arena. And why would you pay for something that's paper? I think some people always do that because they like something tangible. And I'm I'm a culprit. I used to love getting the Saturday and Sunday papers, and now I just read everything online. The idea that you are part of the problem hasn't quite been driven home to people. If you want quality journalism, you have, you to, have pay to pay for, for it. it. One of my problems with the with the death of local newspapers, and it's something that bothers me an, an awful lot, is you know I grew up outside of London in a working class family. The way I got into the media was through local newspapers and that is where the vast majority of working class and non-London people are found and they are an excellent training ground. It doesn't mean that you are going to get onto the nationals from there. You are a lot more likely to get onto the nationals if you are working on a local paper and you find yourself covering a huge court case. If we close that door and if the local newspapers don't exist, what we are going to end up with is a media that is predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly London-based, predominantly middle class. And the problem there is, after Brexit happened, there was a lot of navel-gazing went on, I would say, at the BBC, at The Guardian, at a lot of the left-wing press. But how did we not spot this coming? You didn't spot it because you don't know any working-class people. You don't spend enough time in those communities. And how you spend time in those communities is to help funnel those people into your own industry. And if local newspapers go, that's going to be a massive problem. In fairness, I think that was London. I think London went... I don't oh, know, but I think... a surprise. But that, that's the trouble. And All anyone the not from London, like me, went, there's a UKIP shop in my hotel, mate. This shouldn't be... This is not it's surprising. Not surprise, yeah. yeah. But all the media is in London. Well, everything's in London. The politicians didn't spot it. Well, the media yeah. didn't spot it. The people didn't spot Guardian it. And, yeah. You know, they've shut down all the... Even the bigger papers have closed well, down. Well, the Manchester Guardian is the Manchester Evening News now, but it, now it's owned by Trinity Mirror. In fact, an interesting story about the Manchester Evening News. In May, when the Manchester Arena attack took place that killed, you know... Was it 22 people? 
30 local journalists from around the UK volunteered to give up their days off to go and offer relief for the exhausted journalists. Journalists from America, from the Boston Globe, sent them pizza in solidarity for all the work that they were doing. And then the next month, Trinity Mirror announced redundancies more redundancies at the paper. Trinity Mirror clearly doesn't value the public service that the journalists are doing. Manchester Evening News, when I finished college, I got offered a scholarship at the Manchester Evening News, actually. And whether it it was the right thing to... I mean, I'm I'm where I am, and I went the route I went, and it's all all right for now. But I turned it down because I wanted to go to university. But at 18, they were bringing on people, like, I wrote in and you actually, like, test stuff. They were seeing sparks and getting you in early. And then when I came out of uni and I did a postgrad NCTJ, at the end of the NCTJ where they're posting up jobs from around the country and you knew you'd probably have to move to get on a local paper, I remember one advertised in Cornwall. This was in the, late 90s. And it was five grand a year fish and chips on a Friday. And it's like, that's not a piss take. That's what they were offering so there was never very much money, but now no. it's like even that. I mean, I bet you don't get fish and chips anymore. I'd be surprised if that newspaper even exists anymore. Yeah. People will say, you can get into like the media now through your own blog, et cetera, et cetera. That's People, what I did. Yes. Yeah. However, if you are then set up as a freelance journalist and you are sitting at home <laughs> writing, I learned more from the people I sat next to in offices ever than I learnt from an editor yeah. or from a training course. Tips, hacks, whatever you want to call it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, like my route into it was I wrote a blog and it did all right and I was all right at writing and then I got some more work like with you guys and other places and now I do this. But, yeah, I, I was a civil servant. Like, I didn't train to be a journalist. But it's interesting, like, Deborah Francis-White was saying at our gig the other day that, you know, like, there's no gatekeeper anymore. If you want to make something happen, you can make it happen for yourself. So I'm a bit, like, I'm kind of a bit torn by it because that was my route in. But also, at the same time, it massively devalues the profession of journalism. Not everyone can be a journalist because you're going to get stuff wrong. And, yeah, Jen, you've, like, come into something and you're good and your talent has seen you through. But you didn't sit there going, I really want to go to a local council meeting find out what's going on in my community <laughs> and tell people about it. You went, I want to try all the different sports. It was glamorous. There was something quite exciting about it. And what's needed to get life-changing stories in mm. the nationals that aren't being covered anymore is that groundwork that mm. isn't glamorous, that is so hey, boring. I, I take umbrage <laughs> with that. There's nothing glamorous about playing hockey in the pissing rain <laughs> on a Tuesday night in Romford. I would Again, you do it in Royston's parish council meeting in Hertfordshire. <laughs> um, you know, it is so incredibly dull. Um, but it matters to local people. It matters that their voices are heard. You know, we talked about it being important for democracy, but, you know, it does affect how people live their lives, how they vote. Um, And we've seen last year with the Brexit referendum that it matters how people vote and if they feel that their voices are being heard. The trouble with the internet is Mm. that advertising is quite often based on clicks. The trouble with click-based media is that it encourages people to see what stories do well and do more stories on that and therefore a story's worth is judged by the amount of people that read it. It matters because it could turn out that that story that only 200 people read 
turns into the Grenfell fire. So I worked with a really talented producer at the BBC who was the last reporter to work at the Kensington Chelsea Chronicle before it shut in 2014. And she would sit in the council meetings and she would put Grenfell on the front page and then they shut it in 2014. And the reporter who took it over was based in Surrey. It's not only just that they're closing the papers down. So I spoke to the editor of Press Gazette today and he said to me, it's not the case that the net loss of papers is what's killing it. It's the hollowing out of the staff. So you've lost maybe 200 papers, about 1,300, 1,100 papers, but you've lost half the staff. You've lost 6,000 regional journalists. In 2008, you used to have 13,000. You've now got 6,000 covering almost the same number of newspapers. In London boroughs, the average um, London borough has a single local reporter covering the entire borough. That's 200,000 people. I mean, you can't record an eye roll, but my eyes hurt. They're so far back in my head. And they're often covering them from Islip. They're covering Islington. from. I I mean, the Islington Gazette, which used to be one of my old rivals, they moved their offices to, I think it was Islip. This was I don't even know where that is. It's far, guys. It's, you know, they were no longer in the local patch. If there was a fire, if there was a problem, it would take them an hour to get in. Kind of go full circle. So you get back to the Cambridge News and the missing headline, Mm. the missing splash. You know, of course people can notice it's the front page. But there are companies, there are publications online or whatever out there, and I'm not going to name names, but they've clearly not got trained journalists. They've got writers, which is different. And they are making mistakes that could get them sued. They're small enough at the moment to fall under the radar or people just aren't reading them. But they're they're putting mistakes out there that could get them sued. As much as, you know, when you put a photo of something next to another headline and people can just associate it. Or as, I can't remember the name of the paper, so I won't say which one it was, when they were ripping apart Raheem Sterling, the England footballer, for no good reason apart from, like, quite heavily racist undertones all the media decided they're going to pick on him um, and there was, someone ran a story about how he used to be friends with a drug dealer and then used his picture as like the main picture of the piece so it was like drug dealer in the headline and then a picture of Raheem Sterling Well, when, quite famously, H from Steps his real name is... Oh yeah, it's the oh, guy... Ian Watkins. Ian Watkins, yes. He yeah. appeared in instead of Ian Watkins' terrible paedophile... From Lost Profits. Mm. From the Lost Profits. It, mistakes happen. But mistakes are not aided by terrible staff morale, terrible mm. staff shortages and shit technology. The most positive thing that I think, um, you know, I think we've been really moany about the local press, which actually I think it probably does merit, but there are some actually really positive things that the regional publishers are doing, and that is that they've started a lot of data units and investigative units where some lucky journalists who somehow get chosen get to work in these units and they get given the time and the money and the resources to do investigative stories, and actually the regional papers, the regional publishers actually place to their advantage that they're big because if somebody goes and does the FOI for the entire country, they can then break it down and give it to every single paper that they own. Mm. Just, um, just for the people who won't know what it means, FOI? Uh, sorry, Freedom, Freedom of Information. So the BBC has started its own shared data unit. Um, the Bureau Local, that's a, a subsidiary of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, they are now active in 96 cities. They upload data online. If you're a partner with them, um, break it down, 
locally for your area, have quotes that they've sourced um, for you. And they just won a British Journalism Award for innovation last week. Archant, um, who cut a lot of jobs, they own the Ham and High around the corner as well mm-hmm. as the Islington Gazette. Emma Yule is their investigative reporter. She won the Paul Foot Award the Private Eyes Paul Foot Award. She beat The Guardian and The Daily Mail for her investigation on homelessness. It was published in the Hackney Gazette. So actually, it is possible, it is positive, but in in general, the industry is screwed, but there are tiny little positive steps forward. Oh my God, there is hope. I think that's the positive note we needed to end on. <laughs> Thanks ever so much for coming in, Alice. That was brilliant. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Question and not answering that. Hi, this is Sarah Milliken and you are listening to Sarah Milliken's Question Time. Now, this week is a question about, I suppose we could say the question was, what do I do if I'm on my own on Christmas Day and I'd rather not be? I suppose that's the question. And it's not from anybody in particular. It's just a way of me letting you know about joining. Now, joining is a thing that I started, I think this is our seventh year of doing it. And it means that on Christmas Day on Twitter, We all get together, all the people who are on their own, all the people who are lonely, even though they're surrounded by people, because that's a thing. It was in a Bon Jovi song, but I have experienced it myself. And we all use the hashtag JOININ, so hash and then J-O-I-N-I-N. I I had to think there, that's not a good sign, is it? And we all chat with each other. And this is all day Christmas Day. It starts early when I, well, whenever I get up, but usually people have started before me. I put the rules and regs out there, let everybody know how to do it, how to stay safe doing it. And we just chat and it's so lovely. And it just, it's not for people who, I understand there are people who are on their own on Christmas Day and have chosen to. And to be honest, I think those guys are the ones that are winning Christmas. They're just sitting in their pants all day eating cheese. But there are people, for whatever reason, complicated family situation, you know, people, partners at work, you know, kids are with their dad or their mum this year. There's loads of different reasons why you might be on your own and you don't necessarily want to be on your own. And this way, you get to have a conversation with people. You don't have to hoover, because I always have to hoover when people come round. It's the only time I hoover, though, note to self and, and to everybody else. So get on Twitter on Christmas morning. Join Twitter if you have to, which is very easy and free. And follow me at Sarah Millican 75 and then keep an eye on the hashtag, hashtag join in. Keep an eye on that and you'll see people start to have a conversation and I'll be retweeting them like bloody Billy O. And then keep an eye on them. Start having a conversation. Stop jumping in. Start saying to that person who's said, oh, I'm on my own, but I've just put the kettle on. Who wants a cup of tea? Join in and just say, oh, I'll have a cup of And just have a nice conversation with somebody. We, we tend, tend to post up what we're watching on the telly, what we're having to eat, pictures if you like. And it means that everybody can have a nice chat it just a lovely community builds and it's genuinely heartwarming and it's it's honestly if I'm honest it's what Christmas is to me now I spend way too long on Twitter on Christmas Day <laughs> I have a very understanding family so I will see you on the Twitters hashtag join in and just come and join in just come and have some fun and chat on and you know what if it makes you feel a little bit better smash it even if you just want to watch for a bit first sometimes people just do that that's all right as well so twitter christmas day hashtag join in if you're on your own or you know if you're with family and there's problems and it's tricky just phone in pocket go and tell them you've got the shits have yourself a little bit of me time in the toilet and come and give us a wave i'll see you there if you'd like me to answer one of your questions then tweet us at standard issue uk using the hashtag smqt Thank you. Standard issue for all women.
I'm here with Daisy May Hudson, who is a filmmaker and activist. We are chatting about her Vaudeville film, Halfway. We are in a pub in the um, very gentrified area, actually, of Newington Green slash Dalston. So it's a little bit noisy, and you might hear the odd clattering of things, or a dog, apparently. Or a, <laughs> or a clink of a glass. Daisy, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. You have made a documentary. You made it a couple of years ago now. Daisy, what's your documentary halfway about? So, um, it's about when, in 2013, my mum's sister and I were made homeless. Um, We were privately renting for 13 years and suddenly our landlord decided that they wanted to sell off the property. The rent had remained relatively stable over that time. And then when they sold off, we basically couldn't afford anything in Alokura and had no choice but to declare ourselves homeless to the council. And the film is an intimate portrait of what it means to be living without a home. We were in a hostel for a year and I just filmed every day and then turned it into a feature doc. I was always interested in documentary as kind of a tool for social change and for joining the dots between people's experiences a great tool for creating empathy and I asked for a camera for my 21st birthday and then we got, I got a phone call from my mum to say we were going to be evicted and we were going to be homeless whilst finishing my dissertation so I jumped on the train back and basically was really distraught putting all my stuff in boxes and went to the pub with my friends and uh, I just you know, in that situation, there's nothing really that you can do. There's and being a person that's quite active and, and an activist, I felt really like my hands were tied. And so my friend suggested that I film it, and then at least I was kind of making a problem visible. Because at that time, also there was no conversations about hidden homelessness and um, and what it means to live that double life. But it meant something to each one of my family. That various kind of like therapeutic process and um, kind of social activism and then also just making sure that we couldn't be ignored because it's very easy to when you're in that situation just to feel like you're invisible. And so did you find the process of recording it was it quite cathartic in a way or I guess making the film afterwards? Definitely for me whilst we were actually in the hostel the film was what allowed me to kind of stay in a weird way it allowed me to objectively handle my emotions because you know I would if people say you know what's how's the homeless situation I would talk about the film or you know I'd constantly in a weird way be thinking about my mum and sister in as characters and themes and that allowed me to cope because actually I was quite um I guess quite a big part of my um, mum's and sister's emotional stability and so there kind of wasn't room for me to really you know, feel sad. Even though they probably would hate to think that. And, they, you know, there was room and we were all incredibly close. But for me, I just felt like I'm the older sister. I've got to look after um, everyone. And the, the film allowed me to stay on the outside. And it was kind of bound up, I think, with my own mental health in the sense that I told myself that I wouldn't start filming until we got a home. And... When, you know, a uh, kind of friend said, oh, you could stop filming now, There's, you've been filming for six months, I felt that if I stopped filming, we might not get somewhere to live. So I just kept filming. Definitely for my mum, I think there was a sense of, when she was having these, dip, you know, frustrating phone calls with council bureaucracy or feeling like 
well, our hostel was like in the trees in the back of Epping Forest, so I think she felt like, you know, I could be invisible and actually get getting home and being able to talk to the camera and feel like she was talking. Whilst it was a, it was a very candid yeah. kind of relationship between my mum and my sister and, and me and the camera, but she definitely felt at some points that she was like talking to someone beyond, and I, I think she kind of felt like it was giving her some power, mm. and for me as well, <gasps> my little sister. Probably not so much. Yeah. She's quite young, wasn't she, when it was made? Yeah, she was 13 when it, when, it's, when we started being... Um, when we got into the hostel, and 15 when we came out. And I think, you know, when you're a teenager, you just want the whole world to swallow you up and be invisible and actually being homeless and then have a camera shoved in your face is quite difficult. But she is amazing and she doesn't... She Like, now she watches the film and she comes to panels and does Q&As with me and she, like, loves it and I think it's real. It shows just how strong we are as a family and the kind of the determination and the humour and the love that got us through it and that yeah. to have that kind of immemorialised in a film is something, you know that we can be proud of and it turns something that could have been quite painful and was quite painful into something that gives power to us and power to other people. What did it feel like being sort of stuck in this hostel? It is so strange. I mean, firstly, you know, we were in a semi-nice hostel and there were people in far worse situations than us. You know, ours was a family hostel and I think if you're a single woman or a single man, the hostels are quite horrible. I think it's that whole state of liminality, like not knowing. You just are stuck in this space. You can't plan your future. You can't forget your past. You're constantly rethinking every decision that you've ever made, particularly for my mum, who, you know, she felt her job was to put a roof over a child's head. And when that ability is taken away through no fault of her own, we put the blame on the individual rather than on society. I think it's very, very difficult in a hostel. And the ceilings were quite low. It was a converted hospital, and the one before that was a converted army barracks. So they're not, like, particularly light places. They're quite artificial space. You, that temporary nature of it means that you can't really, you can't decorate, you can't make it home because you might, they could come up with a house tomorrow and you get the keys by the council and you have to move the next day. So my mum was kind of a bit worried about putting things up because we'd already moved like three times in, in two, two weeks. So it was just, yeah. So you're using your experience to do you know, a lot of campaigning work and activism and stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about about that? In Epping, where we experienced, and we were offered a place, uh, you know, like two... It would have taken my sister two hours to get to school on the bus. That is because there is a shortfall of council housing in that area. Um, but I think in London, what's specifically happening is social cleansing. So not only is there a shortfall of council housing, but it's... It's a choice, and it's a choice made by government. It's a choice made by local councils. And the council housing that does exist, like huge estates all across London, is being knocked down and in the place that is going up luxury properties. In 2011, the government brought in something called the Localism Act, which then devolved power to local councils, kind of creating this, like, neoliberal like gentrification on steroids kind of housing competitive housing market within councils where to save money they would you know council housing doesn't doesn't make councils money whereas luxury properties does with that comes like social cleansing where where people that have lived there their whole lives or who have a right to live in those 
in that housing get a letter through their front door and say that they're going to be moved and they're not they're told where they've got to move and that might be you know out of the borough it might be out of london it could be as far up north you know as manchester and birmingham if you're essentially a person that's poor or you're a working class person you don't, you know you don't have rights you're you're seen as second class and therefore you have second class rights so the fact that that person pays rent as much as a pri- to a private landlord to a council that doesn't matter to to local councils and to the government it's like well you're poor so you should be grateful for even having somewhere to live and that's the kind of attitude that when when power structures or pe- uh, people believe that you should be grateful things like Gre- grenfell happen because actually what happened was the you know the residents were complaining they were saying this is like a massive problem in terms of fire and then they weren't listened to because you know they were seen as kind of just moaning or they they're not deemed as important as a big posh buildings essentially which would have massive fire safety kind of um, systems in place and then 70 plus people have lost their lives when Grenfell happened, I was completely heartbroken. Like, just, I felt like I'd let those people that died down because we had, there's a, the housing activist network isn't that big in London. So you kind of know, everyone knows each other. And, you know, we had been fighting issues of social cleansing in the States all across London for the last, like, five to ten years. This, the exact same issues that allowed Grenfell to happen, we have been fighting on, you know, in estates in um, Sweetsway Estate in Barnet and um, Carpenters Estate in Stratford and um, and the Aylesbury and Haygate Estate and you know, the government when they say lessons will be learned, they've not they've not been learned and they continue to not be learned. I think it's quite interesting that um, so sort of the point of the documentary really is, is sort of about the hidden homeless because your family situation is not what people traditionally think of when they think of homelessness. Um, I think people think of people like literally living on the streets, you know, begging for money or whatever. That's what people think about when they think about homelessness. But this sort of situation in London, the kind of not just in London, obviously, but I'm just drawing on my own experience here, the sort of gentrification in areas like London is obviously causing this situation to a certain extent. I see more people at the moment who are, you know, people on the streets asking for money and things like that who do not fit what I sort of, in my mind, stereotype as, like, a a homeless person. But that's kind of the point, isn't it, that this is a situation that is now affecting far more people and in fact we are all a lot more vulnerable than maybe we think we are. Yeah, there's a shelter statistic that we're only three paychecks away from being homeless because now there's no safety nets. The private sector is completely unregulated, which which means like rents are sky high in the private rented sector. Um, So people don't really have that many rights. Landlords can just do essentially what they want. There's not enough council housing. People can't afford to buy their own homes. So it's like this huge domino effect of when there's when people can't buy their homes that used to be able to buy their homes because of you know inflation of housing prices. Then those people then have to rely on the private rented sector. 
But then what that means is that the people that used to rely on the private rental sector can no longer rely on the private rental sector. So you might be working, you might think you're actually quite comfortable, but you can't afford to rent. So then more and more people are relying on council housing. But council housing is depleted in stock for the last since the 80s with when Margaret Thatcher brought in right to buy. And then with there not being enough council housing, people are then relying on temporary accommodation and B&Bs. And if you're... Because there's so many people now that need temporary accommodation and B&Bs. If you're a single man or a single woman, you're out on the streets and that's it. And so I think that's where everything is absolutely at crisis point. And so that stereotype that people had, now it could be, you know, it can be anyone. And it can take just a job loss or a family breakup, an illness, and you are in that position because um, now the safety net's taken away. And I, you know, I'm a feminist and always advocate for women's rights, And but I think it's also particularly hard for, like, young men. If you look at, you know, in Manchester, there's just so many homeless young men, um, and that's because there's, like, there's no housing for them and they're so low on the priority, so it's tough. Domestic violence, if you're fleeing a domestic violence relationship, now there's no housing for you, so... You're being forced back, women are being forced back into that relationship, unsafe, just so they've got somewhere to, somewhere to live. And, you know, if you're a refugee or, like, seeking asylum, that's an, another kind of, you know, level of hardship. So I think, yeah, it's just everything's in dire straits, and we got there by allowing housing to be a commodity instead of a human right. Do you think there is understanding of it within the sort of wider community, wider society, that this is actually something that could affect a lot of people? I think the film, because we're just a loving, happy family, that, and then it's contextualised within the hostel, I think that allows it to be more universal and more relatable. So, you know... I also wanted, I'm very political, but I wanted to keep politics out of it and actually make the personal very political. Like, if you show day-to-day -day lived realities of what it feels like to lose your home and the mental health, that's actually far more powerful than if I ranted, as I like to, for an hour and a half. I think that's allowed it to get into spaces and places and affect people right across the board, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be doing, is to show that, you know, this is a, like, national problem that's affecting yeah. everyone people now are co definitely cottoning on that we're in like this national housing crisis but i still don't think people are blaming the, the government enough you know and blaming a, like a neoliberal global system everywhere there's housing crisis all across the world and that's because we're in you know well, no, I don't think it's about overpopulation because there are entire blocks of flats in London that are bought up by cash-rich investors from, you know, from across the seas and in the UK, and they're just left there. So it's not a... I don't think it's a problem of population. It's a problem of allowing money to talk when, you know, this, it should be about housing being a need as much as food and water is. We have to have public outrage. Like we have to, we have to make the government scared enough to actually listen to our demands. Because actually, I think they also—they're intelligent people. They know the solutions as well, but they're just not willing to do it. Because the fact is, you know, there's a lot of people that are making a lot of money from the housing crisis exactly where it is, 
and the people that are struggling are usually too scared to rock the boat or too, um, you know, when you're fighting a housing battle, it's, your housing is the centrality of like your whole existence. So when you're in that situation trying to fight for your home, you don't really have time to go out on the streets or like, you know, to lobby and stuff. So never, ever, ever forget what, what happened. Stay angry for them, amplify the voices of, of that community. We just need to be way more aware of, particularly like, I think young creatives and middle class people, it is hard to get a house, it's hard to rent. You want to move into an area where it's cheap because you're all on low wages, but there has to be an element of sustainability and like, understanding of what existed in that community before and like who's being displaced why they've been displaced how can you support local community centers lo local people and i think that is on you know your head to actually make sure that you do you do that because that's that's a big part of the problem daisy i have seen your film it's excellent i'm a little bit biased because my best friend understood it but yeah. tell us first of all where can we see your film and also, how can people help? How can people get involved in the activism you're doing or find out more about it if they want to? Firstly, thank you. Secondly, we've got a website, www.halfwayfilm.co.uk and we'll be updating that with information. Um, we're just about to sign a distribution deal for online and uh, DVDs and all fun things like that so then people can see it because at the minute people just can't see it unfortunately you can search for the trailer on YouTube halfway 2015 and yeah and if you follow me on Twitter so my, my Twitter handle is at DSYHDSN I set it up like five years ago and basically thought it'd be cool to like just take out all the vowels of my name and then now I've just got this really awkward Twitter handle <laughs> that no one remembers. But please remember it. And then what can people do? I think support Shelter, the charity. They're amazing. They do loads and loads of local localised work with individual cases um, and they give, you know, legal aid and legal support. Um, that's really important. And support your local law centre as well because they give pro, pro bono advice to people struggling with housing. Just get angry at what is going on in this country. Like, how are we in this situation where children are going to school with rickets and people are like essentially starving and no one has anywhere to live? Be angry and then harness that anger and get your placards and just get out. Definitely support your local residents if you know that there's residents associations and housing activists in your area. Radical Housing Network, an amazing housing activist group that do lots of like eviction resistance. Daisy, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute dream. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly... No, they shouldn't have been 12th, 11th, 10th and 9th, <laughs> respectively, in Sports Personality of the Year, of the week. That didn't really make sense, but you'll get it. We'll talk about it in a minute. As we talk all things women's sports, and I'm joined by two special guests. Two specialists. Two special guests. <laughs> I'll, I'll take Not tennis specialists. and boxing. Um, I'll take uh, running and sleeping. So when we're talking about women in sport this year, there are a bunch of women who deserve praise and recognition. The England women's cricket team for winning the World Cup, 
Jodie Taylor for her epic goal haul at the Women's Euros, Nicola Adams for making her professional boxing debut, Katie Archbold, who's won pretty much everything in velodromes across the world this year. I could go on, but there are two women who stand out in particular. Chelsea and England women's football team member Enia Luko. So she's become, I would say, something of a controversial figure this year. But when it comes to Women of the Year from the world of sport, it would be remiss not to mention her. She took the Football Association to task over allegations of racism and bullying and eventually third time round, <laughs> she won. And she's had a lot of flack from the media, accusing her of being difficult, and they have sort of painted a picture, really, of her being a bit of a bully herself. But she's really risen above it, and she's basically just said, stop trying to make me out to be the angry black woman. Yeah, she's another silence breaker, because yeah. I think it's so much... It is easier for women in male-dominated yeah. industries to stay quiet, because you're not sure what the reaction's going to yeah. get. But it's always going to be negative. So clearly I don't know if there's any truth behind some of the less flattering things that have been said about her. But, you know, fair enough. She made 20 allegations to the FA about the treatment that she perceived herself and other teammates to be enduring at the hands of their, you know, their coaches and and other staff. And she was basically ignored until it hit the news and pretty much paid off not to talk about it and I think if you're making 20 allegations of racism and bullying about effectively your employees that's a pretty good reason to be fucked off isn't it you kind of forget as well that for a woman playing for the national team it is not the same as the men it's not a distant second after the thousands of pounds per week salary a lot of men in the Premier League enjoy they work their asses off really for fuck all comparatively speaking and and I think you know they really have to want to be there whereas for a lot of the guys there's a huge conflict between their domestic team and their national team because their managers don't want them to play because they might get injured and they don't get handsomely financially rewarded for it in the same way that they do by their clubs and there's this really horrible trend I think um, when non-white people speak out against racism like for example Colin Kaepernick in the NFL over in the States at the moment for people to say well you weren't really good enough and you're just pissed off that you got overlooked. You know, you weren't good enough to make the team because Enia Luka was effectively dropped from the England team this year before all of this came out. And a lot of people would say that seemed like an odd decision at the time. And there have been other things that have been said about reasons why she got dropped. Obviously, I'm not in a position to to know whether or not there's any truth in that. But, you know, she has been proven right. Again, admittedly, third time round. But she has been proven right by an independent inquiry. And yet the nonsense goes on. People have held their hands up and said, yeah, fair enough, they were racist. And yet people still continue to go on about, you know, saying shit about her, basically. And it is, you know, it's the same old shit as you sort of alluded to before, Mick. A woman a, a woman refuses to put up with bad behaviour and gets labelled as difficult. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the whole hashtag me too thing and various kind of movements of this year, as well, as a woman of colour, she has as much right to be heard and supported by her fellow women as anyone else. And for me, this also highlights massive double standards that we've been talking about, you know, in, in, in that respect this year. I think, personally, I think, you know, it's inexplicable that heads haven't rolled at the FA over this. And I think, quite possibly, we could have seen a very different picture if the men's team had been implicated in a shitstorm like this. 
Oh, the only thing I have to add is I think my personal sporting hero of the year was Colin Kaepernick's mum. Oh. If not just for that tweet that she sent Donald Trump when oh, he called him a yeah. son of a bitch. So she's a and she said, that makes me the world's proudest bitch. Yeah. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, I love that. Bless her. There's some really, really horrible shit yeah. about that as well. Yeah. Like, oh, you were brought up by white people and now you like to, you know, just like, just nonsensical bullshit. And it's a really, really unfortunate thing that we're seeing at the moment. But anyway. As we record this, we are all taking the knee. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to uh, another name well worth a mention. So apparently not according to the uh, Sports Personality of the Year voting public is Joe Conter. Conter was the first British woman since 1978 to reach a Wimbledon semi-finals. She lost to I've written here Venue Williams. <laughs> Thanks spellcheck. She lost to uh, Venus Williams, but she made it into the top 5 ranked female players of the in the world as a result of that. So she came in at 4th in the world, which is incredible especially when you think that like 2 years ago she was 150th in the world and she's not like super young either. I actually do do tennis, mm. which is one of the few sports I actually do. You're like your knowledge of old tennis yeah. players. Well, she's, she's not called Nick Poulos. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. My mum was really into tennis. So that's where it comes from. I personally am not really into um, uh, tennis as a, a national sport. I always think you find a tennis player that you yeah, like. Absolutely. Yeah. And that you that they're from the Czech Republic or America or, or Australia shouldn't matter. It's, what's interesting about Joanna Conte is how much absolute just bollocks was peddled for years and years and years about Tim Henman. What a hero, what a hero, you know. The great hope. And, I mean, I know now we have Andy Murray. Tim Henman literally once achieved what Joanna Conta achieved this year. Oh, and she wasn't. No, he did it. He did it once. He did, did it. He? he was in the semi-final against Goran Ivanisevic. Oh. Like he, he, he didn't so he much. Had a hill named after him for he, fuck's sake. Uh, the thing he was like lauded. So I find it staggering that literally it's just that she's a woman. She has not received the coverage. Fairness to her. She had a really good half of the year. Well, I like to think it's because people thought in the second half of the year, actually, you sort of, you know, you didn't have that much to report in terms of good news on Joe Concert. So I like to think it's that, not just because they're twits, uh, you know, sexist wankers. But I mean, while I am on the subject of it, I will. it is worth saying again that um, the four women of the 12 candidates placed 12... Uh, 12th, 11th, 10th and 9th by quite a quite a wide Ooh, margin. Although awesome yeah, Harry Kane actually didn't get that many votes either. Chris Froome was still in there though. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, I, I mean, mean when, and in fairness, they don't know the no, exact state of no. affairs there yet. But, but he is currently Maybe being, they'd already voted. That's what they said about that governor that punched someone in. It, maybe they just had so. an asthma attack before they made the phone call. But I mean, like he is currently being investigated over a failed drugs test. So, I mean, Again, like, no disrespect to him. And as you said, Mick, we don't have a clue what is going on there. But it does... Obviously, there are some questions right now on the fact that, like, someone who has, you know, been... Had the achievement that Joe Conta has this year is sort of baffling to me. But the other thing, just to mention quickly, the other thing that Joe Conta achieved this year, not only, obviously, this, you know, staggering rise to fourth in the world although I'm sure she isn't fourth in the world right now. Um, not only that, but the peak audience figure for her quarterfinal against Simona Halep was 7.4 million, which made it the most watched match broadcast by the BBC over the entire tournament. So, dudes, with your 
no one cares about women's sport and male players bring in more money, you like literally need to cock off because like she has absolutely categorically proven you wrong. That's yeah, that's it from me this week and indeed our special guests or specialists, uh Hannah Dunleavy. <laughs> Big on big on Croatian tennis players. Yeah, um, yeah. More sporty. Mickey Noonan. Big on listening. Oh. Mickey Noonan. Mickey Noonan knows more about sport about than, the bats than and balls. She would, exactly than Shh. than she would let on. Uh, but yeah, that's it for sporty stuff this week. And we will be back in the new year with more sports things. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you watch this week? Nothing. Are you all right, mate? Okay, so since we started this, I have watched 22 Disney films, 23, if you count the fact that I started The Sword in the Stone but was unable to put up with the sheer unadulterated tedium of it. I've never met anyone so bitter about a film they didn't finish. (laughs) And the thing is, there are still loads and loads and loads of them to go. And if you're thinking... Well, wait a minute, what ones hasn't she done? That's kind of my point. There's a lot of infinitely forgettable Disney films waiting to fill my 2018. Fantasia. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Treasure Treasure Planet, have you even heard of that? Nope. No, something called Home on the Range. No. Nope. I think Treasure Planet is, like, on Blackpool Promenade. It's just got loads of puggies. Yeah. What's the one with um, Zippity-Doo-Dah? Oh, it's Song of the South. We're not doing that one because oh, okay. it's just racist. Is it just more racist? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I have learned a few things, so I thought we could have a little recap for anyone who's, like, new or never gets as far as listening to Don Levy Does Disney. The pleasure of all 22. Yes, 22. Dunleavy does Disney's today. It's not quite coming across on the podcast, but Dunleavy is foaming at the mouth. I think you've got Disney rabies. I have. Okay, then. You've claimed you've learned some stuff. What have you learned? I've learned that the sword and the stone is unwashable. Are you ever going to get over that? No, really. <laughs> firstly, firstly, what I've learned is that I, I need to believe in myself. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. Not really. Honest. Not really. Why is she dressed like a princess? I've learned that Disney was not a cat person. And an equal opportunities racist. Yeah. So, okay, so normally at this point we'd stop and do a, a recap, a plot recap. So instead of that, I thought I'd do a short pricey of everything that I have seen. Mickey, if you could help me by reading out the list, that would be helpful. Awesome. Happy to help. Beauty and the Beast. Um, girl gives up dream to read books to a monster. Plus there's an amusing B plot about a teacup fucking a saucer. That's my favourite bit. <laughs> the Lion King. I can't really remember it. Snow White. Woman sings at housework, falls into surprisingly unrelated coma. <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. Girl trills at nature, falls into surprisingly unrelated coma. Cinderella. Girl does housework, marries man who might as well be in a coma. <laughs> the Little Mermaid. Mermaid becomes girl, forgets writing and reading is a thing. The Rescuers. Seriously, like a lost Margaret Atwood novel in comparison to most of the other ones. Did she bury that in a time capsule? Possibly. <laughs> okay. The Fox and the Hound. Brokeback Mountain for Children. Pinocchio. Puppet becomes donkey, then becomes puppet again, then becomes real boy. Lady in the Tramp. Posh Dog gets involved with a bit of rough. Um, <laughs> this film can actually be pepped up with a drinking game I call Guess What the Fuck That Accent's Supposed to Be. <laughs> Pocahontas. Basically one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. I think you should all know that, as, as Donnie said, that her hair was blowing in a wind that no one else could see or feel. Some feathers yeah. floating past. Frozen. Overrated. Bambi. 
deer is boring in forest. Forest burns down. <laughs> forest is in a coma. Yeah. Robin Hood. One of Disney's history plays. Fox plays tennis with chicken during the Crusades. Also, Fit Fox. Fit Fox. Fit Fox. I was talking about this to someone the other day, and they agreed, just putting that out there. They thought you were weird for not fancying the cartoon guy. Okay. Oh, was hot, wasn't he? 101 Dalmatians. No complaints from me. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Man represses wank in medieval Paris. <laughs> Tangles. Something about a frying pan. Dumbo. Nothing to see here. Brave. Fuck yeah. Peter Pan. Fuck no. The Jungle Book. I don't fucking know. <laughs> Any any extra learnings? Well, I've learned that mums are invariably more attractive than dads. Yep. Or old enough to get a free bus pass. Or dead. Or a teapot. Or locked in a trunk for mad elephants. Or 75% tits. Yeah. I've learned the sidekicks aren't always as cute as Disney thinks that they are. Abu and, and Tinkerbell can both fuck right off. You really hated that I monkey, I really Jen. hate that monkey. Love is often right under your nose or a seemingly unsurmountable distance away or in the last place you look for it. But the important thing is, if you haven't fallen in love with someone by day three, you're not trying hard enough. Love is basically lost car keys. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the more attractive you are, the more likely you are to be a nice person, unless you're a man, in which case you can look like what the cat coughed up and you'll still be beating them off with a stick. That's actually quite true yeah. in real life, to be fair. The second bit. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's the bit I meant, not yeah. the nice thing. Yeah. Um, I've learned that the joke where somebody doesn't notice something really obvious until about 30 seconds after they should have noticed it and then does a massive double take is not fucking funny. But it's all Geppetto's got. It is all Geppetto's <laughs> got. He's, yeah, rubbish. Okay. The best villains are all women. Agreed. Madame Medusa. That underwater sea hag thing in Ursula. The Little Mermaid, yeah. Ursula, yeah. Cruella de Vil. Uh, there was a brilliant tweet about Ursula, and it went um, something along the lines of, why when an angry, dom, lesbian sea witch tries to save you from a man who only wants you from your looks and a controlling father, is she brutally killed? It's like, yeah. Mm. yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, and then the other thing I learned is but that both The Little Mermaid and Frozen are really overrated. Take that back. No, Jen, it's true. Nice no. treat. Let it go, Jen. No. Did you guys have a favourite which we've watched so far? Well, you know my favourites are The Little Mermaid because of a nostalgic affection for and it. Do you really like racist fish? Crabs, thank you. It's not just crabs; it's the fish in the music scene are I, all like I depicted like as casually racist, racist crabs. <laughs> That's what I like. Uh, no, I don't. Um, Under the Sea is a banger. There's no denying it. I sometimes, I actually, not sometimes, I quite frequently listen to it and smile. Anyway, and The Lion King is just tremendous. Always makes me cry. And the idea that Beyonce and Donald Glover are going to be involved in the live-action remake does things it's to me. It's mind-blowing, I know. <laughs> it does things it to, does things in to in me. The, in the trouser area. <laughs> just in life. In all okay. areas. Okay. Brave. Brave is amazing. It's not just an amazing Disney film. It's just an amazing film. I immediately bought it for my mum and made her watch it with me and got cross with her when she didn't cry because it is just so good. And just, I think it should be in schools. I think everyone should be forced to watch it. I really liked Don't it Don't somebody lot. think of the children? Yeah, I liked Brave. I was lucky that The Rescuers, which was one of my favourite childhood Disneys, was still good. It's adorable. It's really Yeah, lovely. it really is. 
The other one that I have that was my favourite when I was little, um, we haven't done yet, which is the Aristocats. Oh, yeah. well, that was it when you one. said about Disney being quite anti-cat. I yeah, like, I think that's where Aristocats he possibly redeems himself. But, he does um, love dogs, though, doesn't he? I have been surprised quite how racist they all are, to be honest. So it's very equal opportunity, Chinese, French, you know, African-Americans, Native Americans. Everyone's fair game. Everyone is fair game. Unless you're in the forest and then he doesn't want anyone to be game and he will set that hunter on yeah. fire. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favourite Disney fact. <laughs> yeah. I'm not over it that they wanted to burn someone. They wanted to burn someone alive in Bambi. That is so dark. Isn't it? It's been quite stressful to sit and watch loads of kids' films. <laughs> Is Disney your version of Carol of the Bells? It's like I'm Sisyphus. Will you ever get to the top of that? Well, hill? hopefully, if they don't make any more. But if they make more like Brave, it'll be a joy. Yeah, well, we're watching The Princess and the Frog when we come back in January. Hopefully, that might be a bit less Disney princess than previously. I've got high hopes for it. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for... I, I think you've earned a lie down. Yeah. I feel like possibly with some thrash metal or whatever. What is the antidote to Disney? Uh, probably Sam Peckinpah. Oh yeah, I would say some like hideous Western violence. Yeah. All right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's go home and watch the Wild Bunch. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> That's all from us this week, but not for this year. There will be a gig cast on December the twenty seventh, so keep an ear out for that and get it in your earballs when it is indeed released. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and thank you very much for being so lovely and for sharing the joy when you do love Standard Issue, letting other people know, getting us more listeners. It is all very much appreciated, and please just keep on doing that. If you like us, let other people know. If you fancy seeing us say words in front of your very face, then obviously we still have gigs on sale, January at the LST is pretty much sold out. There might be the odd ticket, so it's worth having a check. But we have a corking lineup in Cambridge on January the 19th, including comedian, activist, all-round smasher Liz Carr and brilliant poet and very funny human Holly McNish, as well as another name as yet to be confirmed. And, you know, me and Hannah. So that's always worth coming to see what nonsense we're going to be spouting. In February at Leicester Square Theatre, it's an absolute doozy of a lineup. Roisin Connerty, Issy Sutty and Bridget Christie. Three of the best, not just female comics, but comics in general, doing the rounds at the moment. So have a look at Sarah's site, sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue for details on how to get tickets. We are always up for hearing from you and, you know, let us know who your Women of the Year would be. We'd be fascinated to find out. So you can tweet us at Standard Issue UK or you can follow the three of us. I'm at Mixed to Noonan, Hannah is at That Dunleavy and Jen is at Inspira Jen. And of course, you should be following our Sarah at Sarah Millican 75 I'm off to drink my body weight in cough medicine, which isn't the Prosecco I did have planned for the festive period. But there you go. Thanks, cold. But before I go, I just want to leave you with a little quote that really means quite a lot to me each year, and it comes from an excellent Christmas film, Scrooged. Frank Cross has learned the error of his nasty ways, and as he says, it's Christmas Eve. It's it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We we, we smile a little easier. We, we, we cheer a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. This is us wishing you a really Merry Christmas. 
don't forget to pay it forward if there are any charities close to your heart chuck a bit of money at them at this time of year it's always super appreciated have a great christmas and all that's left for me to say is stay frosty Standard Issue for all women.